0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading from this morning comes from Colossians 1, 9-14. so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God. Thanks, Steve. Morning, Church.
1: Good, morning. Good to see you all. My name's Pete, and uh, so glad you're here today. Uh, if you got a Bible, let's go to the Book of Colossians, chapter one, passage Steve just read for us, and uh, we're going to continue in our series through this prison epistle, letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, from prison to a young community of Christ followers in uh, the ancient city of Colossae. And uh, we started last week, and we'll continue on for uh, a couple months going through uh, this letter. Um, before we dive in, I want to let you know that in the next several over the next several weeks, um, some of our other pastors and elders are going to be uh, bringing along the series with us. And we're kind of doing it as a team, and uh, the next month or so is really going to kind of be a month of extended uh, ministry and learning uh, for me. And so, several opportunities that kind of just all landed in the same place. So I'll be traveling a little bit, speaking in various places, uh, in the, Seattle, uh, Corvallis, over at the coast. Also attending a conference uh, in Southern California, and taking a little bit of time too for kind of some planning and study and uh, long-term uh, vision stuff for the church. So for the next few weeks, I'll be out, but you're going to be in good hands uh, with the rest of our team, and uh, really excited that they uh, get a chance um, that you get a chance to hear from them. So I don't have to tell you when I'm going to be out of town because. Um, Attendance goes down when lead pastors are out of town. But you guys are better than that, aren't you? And I also just don't want you to think anything else is going on. But uh, I'm telling you, because we're friends. So I'll be gone for a couple weeks, and you're going to be fine. So is that good? I, that's exactly right. Thank you. So, Colossians chapter 1. <laughs> You know what? I grabbed last week's notes out of my bag and I'm going to be right back. <laughs> oh my gosh. We could do it again, but I figure we'll move on to the next chunk. Oh man. Um, of all the Rocky movies, Rocky 4 is my favorite always has been, and uh, they were on Hulu, the whole franchise, over the last couple months, and it's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. Rocky IV, if you don't remember, is the one where Ivan Drago, who looks like Vanilla Ice on steroids, um, ends up killing Michael B. Jordan's dad, uh, Paulo Creed, who's Rocky's best friend, and so Rocky travels to Russia to avenge the death of his friend, and... um, We see all this, you know, the classic training montage, and Rocky's like packing logs through six feet of snow and pulling an ox cart down the road. And then Ivan Drago's in this super high-tech mid-80s facility, juicing on roids and getting ready for the fight. Um, And then the day of the fight comes, and the fighters come out to the middle of the st- of the uh, of the ring and that's when the world finds out that Sylvester Salone's only like 4 feet tall right <laughs> And the match starts, and you have this huge communist Russian crowd that's cheering for their guy and anti-US or whatever, and they're booing Rocky and mocking him. But then as the fight unfolds, uh, it looks like this little American's got some heart, and he starts to win over this hostile crowd. And eventually they warm up to him. They start even cheering for him and chanting his name. And uh, not to spoil it for you, but it's like 30 years old. He ends up knocking out Drago and winning the fight. Then Rocky gets up, takes the mic, and gives this epic victory speech. And he says to this Soviet Russian crowd something along the lines of, what I've noticed during this fight is a lot of changing. The way that you feel about me, the way I feel about you. And I guess what I want to say is that if I can change and you can change, then everybody can change. And uh, the crowd erupts and starts chanting, Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. It's a powerful speech. And we know that actually that speech by Rocky Balboa in 1985 set off a series of events that led to the downfall of the Soviet Union in 1991. (laughs) So we are greatly indebted to the Italian stallion, more than we know. Um, Of course, it's, you know, cheesy or not. Um, when I hear Rocky say that I can change and that you can change and that everyone can change, um, he's preaching the gospel. He's uh, agreeing with the message of the Bible that says we have a God in Jesus who is all about transformation, a God who is able to bring about change in the lives of his people and therefore bring about change in the world. Now there's a whole bunch of mysterious, confusing, frustrating questions that come to mind when we engage this topic. The topic of if God is able to bring change to our lives and to this world, then why doesn't that happen way more than it does? Why don't I experience more transformation, more victory, more freedom, more change in my personal life? And why isn't there more hopeful change and transformation in the world around us? There's a lot of questions to be asked. We won't hit all of them today. But the reality is that the story of the gospel is a story of hope when it comes to the state of our lives and the state of the world. That however, whenever it happens that we have a God who desires to bring change to broken people in a broken world. I've I've observed over 20-plus years now as a pastor that pretty much everybody, Christian or non, lives with a looming disparity between who we are and who we'd like to be. There's this gap between where I am today... And how I live and what my life looks like and what I look like and what I'd like to be, who I'd like to become, what I'd like to have and know and do. There's this gap or disparity between who we are and who we'd like to be. And this isn't just a religious thing or a Christian thing. I think culturally... If you pay attention, there's trends, but there's always something that the culture is offering that's saying, if you want to take your life to the next level, if you wanna step up your game, if you want an extreme makeover or whatever it is, here's some of the ways forward. And they're not bad things for the most part. Anytime we make that step of saying, I'm gonna join a gym, right? I'm gonna start doing yoga. I'm going to get into mindfulness and meditation. I'm going to, I mean, it's still January, so a bunch of you are like keto or paleo or something at the moment, going, I'm going to bring some change to my life. There's something, there's here, here's where I am, here's where I'd like to be, what are the steps? And so the self-improvement plan, self-help, and again, most of that stuff, it's good stuff. But it's stuff that we turn to or we launch into when we feel stuck or when that disparity is showing its face. And oftentimes, these places where we feel stuck are places of dysfunction, places that have deep roots within our story and within our soul, like destructive ways of being, ways of treating ourselves or ways of treating uh, uh, others and so there is this fundamental question that we're all asking is is it possible to change can my life be changed and can the world be changed and again huge topic that we're not going to be able to study expansively but I want to see what it is that Paul has to say in this prayer that he shares with the church in Colossae about what he sees in the gospel of Jesus, what it is that he's come to embrace as truth and reality when it comes to a God who Paul believes is committed to bringing change into the lives of his people and change into the world. The chunk that we're in today finishes up or carries off where we were last week And that it's Paul sharing for these Christians in Colossae the content of his prayers for them. He's locked up in prison. We don't know for sure where. But he's heard about this little church in Colossae. And he's writing a letter to encourage them and to instruct them. To warn them against some of uh, the dangers that they're facing. As those who are trying to stay faithful to Jesus in a world that makes that really hard. And what Paul does for the first half of this first chapter is basically assure them that he's praying for them, and then to tell them a little bit about what it is that he's praying for them. So in verse nine he says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And so Paul says, here's what I'm praying for you. And what I want to just observe before we even dive into that is that when Paul engages this topic of transformation of hearts, minds, lives, he doesn't do it in the form of a lecture. He does it in the form of a prayer. Which reveals to us something about the way Paul understands the dynamic between God and his people. That change, yes, of course there's changes we can make to our own lifestyle and improvements we can make and healthy steps we can take. Of course that's true. But he's saying that ultimately when it comes to the transformation of a community of people being conformed to the image of Christ, that's something that only God can do. And so it has to be done in conversation with God. In prayer. And so Paul doesn't say, here's a list of things that you need to do if you want your life to be changed. He says, here's what I'm praying for you that God would do. And that's where this conversation has to start with us. Even the acknowledgement that here, as we gather, this morning in this place, that the Spirit of God is present. God the Holy Spirit is with us the same spirit that empowered and formed the identity and the life of Jesus is here with us as we've gathered under the name and lordship of Christ. And that God, the Holy Spirit, wants to work within our lives to bring healing, to bring transformation, to form us and mold us more into the image of Christ We have to pause and go, this is his work. We are being discipled by Jesus. And are being empowered by the spirit of Jesus. And are being fathered by the father of Jesus. And whatever flows from this point on isn't a matter of me finally taking the steps and taking my life into my own hands and flipping a page or turning over a new leaf. It's a matter of me getting on board with what God is wanting to do in me and through me. It's a matter of cooperating or participating in the formation of my own soul. It's submitting to Jesus as Lord and letting him, by the power of his spirit, bring about the changes that he wants to make in my life. And so this is a prayer, not a how-to. This is an expression of trust. This is a plea from a place of desperation and dependence upon God himself. And so when it comes to the process that God uses to transform his people, to change our lives, the first thing he tells us in verse 9 is that it has to do with the changing of our minds. The changing of our minds. In verse 9, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. That says 10, but it should be 9 through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Look at those key words, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. These are mind words. They have to do with the way we think, the way we see the world, what we believe to be true. They have to do with the story that we have accepted to explain ultimate reality. Knowledge, wisdom, wisdom understanding. And so Paul's aware again that the Colossian Christians are facing some opponents and some obstacles for their allegiance and for their formation into Christ and a big part of that is that there's a battle for their minds. That their thinking and their worldview is being challenged by various pressures and groups in the surrounding culture. We'll get into that more in the coming weeks. But they're being pressured to abandon the gospel of Jesus and to take on worldviews or ways of thinking that are a little bit more palatable, that are seen as a little bit more enlightened, maybe a little bit more modern, a little bit more sophisticated, maybe a little sexier or cooler or whatever it is. And all of a sudden we understand that this is, a very real struggle that we can relate to as well. As people who are asking, what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus in an increasingly pluralistic, increasingly post-Christian society? We are caught up in a battle for our minds. What is it that we will hold to as truth? And so for Paul... When it comes to paying attention to the process God uses to bring transformation into our lives, for Him, not just in this writing, but in many of His writings, the renewal of our minds is essential. And it's not like something that just happens once and then we're good. It's this ongoing process of our minds, our thoughts, our thinking being conformed to the image of Jesus. Or in other words, learning to think the way that God thinks. Learning to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. To define truth the way Christ does. So a famous place where Paul talks about this would be Romans chapter 12. He says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when it comes to us wanting to live the life of Jesus, Paul here in multiple places says it has to do partly with the renewing of our mind, with the consuming of truth, and for us in our thinking and in our worldview to be conformed to the will of God. And so this is why Christians throughout the years, at their best, have been committed to the practice of engaging the mind when it comes to discipleship. It's why Christians have been committed to reading and studying and thinking deeply, not just about a small box of things that we call faith or religion or spirituality, but really wrestling at a big level, philosophically and historically and existentially and whatever else, with what is truth. And what has God declared to be true? And what does it look like for our minds to be renewed according to his? Dallas Willard, who is one of the most brilliant minds, uh, authors and practitioners on this topic of how God changes people, Uh, writes this, that the process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing destructive ideas and images with the ideas and images, images and ideas of Jesus himself. We all know, just experientially, that a huge part of our faith and discipleship to Jesus has to do with our thoughts has to do with the way that we see God, see ourselves, see our neighbor, and see the world. And so for the rest of our life, God will continue his work of forming the mind of Christ within his people. And so for us, the invitation in participating in our own transformation is to cooperate with God, to create space for God's word to shape Our thoughts and to shape our minds. What are some of the practical ways we do that? How do we create space and get on board and participate in the renewing of our mind? I listed a few examples. What might this look like for a people who are committed to partnering with God in the renewing of our minds? It looks like immersing ourselves in Scripture. Whatever that looks like, engaging the Bible, listening for the Word of God within the Scriptures. And there's, we live in an era, in a day and age, where there are so many tools and resources available. And I don't care which plan or which version or which Bible reading app or anything you use. The point is to find time and place within your life to immerse yourself in the scriptures. By yourself, in community, with a real Bible made out of leather and paper or a fake Bible on your phone, whatever it is. To renew, have our minds renewed by God, has to include a lifestyle of being immersed in Scripture. Secondly, it would have to include a lifestyle of listening to God in prayer. Sometimes we think about prayer or talk about prayer primarily as talking to God. And, of course, it includes talking to God and expressing our thoughts and our feelings and our fears and requests to him. And he invites us to do that. But prayer is also meant to be a time of listening to God and a practice of learning to hear God's voice and allow him to speak his truth into us by his Spirit To give us, again, these things that Paul prays, knowledge and wisdom and understanding. It would look like hearing the Bible taught and the gospel preached. In a very real way, what you are doing right now is an active participation in your own transformation. It maybe doesn't feel like it week to week, day in, day out, that you're just sitting and listening to another sermon or whatever. But the truth is that to come and to bring yourself under the scriptures and before the gospel on a regular basis is forming you and is training your mind whether you realize it or not. And so the simple practice of showing up to worship and to hear the word of God proclaimed, to hear the scriptures taught to hear the gospel preached you are actively participating in that and of course you can do that here on Sundays and many of you do that in podcasts and YouTube and other things as well on a regular basis as Jen's getting ready in the morning I hear her a phone in, in the bathroom and it's either like some gnarly true crime podcast or it's Tim Keller or something else you never know but I love that that we have this Bible teaching and gospel preaching available to us world class. makes my job a little harder because that's the competition, but, uh, but it's a gift nonetheless. Next, it would look like reading deeply and widely. And of course, I mean within the now several thousand years of Christian thought and practice that's recorded in the library of the church in, cap- in lowercase letters. Right, all the Christian literature that's been passed down to us from around the world and throughout generations to be people that are committed to reading widely and deeply but not just, again, containing God's uh, reality to this little box called religion, spirituality, or faith but understanding that as we grow to know and understand the world that God has made that we grow to understand the truth of who God is And what God is up to. And so we want to be people who read. We have a really good little church library out there. It's been a hobby for me um, to kind of curate a library of Christian thought and practice. That's, uh, you know, it's only about 50 or 60 books on each topic. But we've organized it around the six practices for discipleship that we believe God has given us as a paradigm for following Jesus. And so uh, that's, that's right out there for you. On a regular basis, I would encourage you to, s- to stop by and to think about what something, a place that you want to grow, something you're curious about, something that would be a challenge to read deeply and wisely. Finally, and this isn't an ex- expansive list, but nurturing spirit-filled friendships. The process of having our minds renewed happens in community. It happens in relationships. It happens when we see ourselves as part of the family of God, and we're not trying to discern truth and follow Jesus in isolation. But by definition, we see ourselves as part of a people who God is working through by his spirit to form Jesus in us. And so nurturing spirit-filled friendships may look like seeking out a mentor, seeking out somebody who's a decade or two ahead of you in their journey. And they don't have to be perfect. They don't have to have a a, a perfect record in terms of how they've done their life. They need to be somebody who's willing to listen to you and to pray for you and to share wisdom and to ask questions. I can't emphasize how valuable this has been in my own life to find mentors in the faith, who I'm able to to ask honest and hard questions of. But we also need peers, right? We also need brothers and sisters. We need people that we can get together with over a pint or a cup of coffee or whatever and be able to sharpen one another's minds. Spirit-filled, Christ-focused friendships. Relationships where it's not awkward to drop a J-bomb, right? That should be totally normal for us. To talk about what God's doing in our lives, how we're, what we're wrestling with, what we're struggling, the questions that we're asking. And so, again, this isn't everything that there is to say about how God changes us through the renewing of our minds. But what Paul seems to be saying is that if we are going to be people who are experiencing transformation, that it has to include the renewing of our minds or the changing of the way that we think but the renewing of our minds the changing of our thinking isn't enough absorbing truth is essential but it is not enough Jesus is the truth but he's also the way and he's also the life so Christianity isn't just a belief system It's not just a set of doctrines that we hold to. It's not just the theology that we hold or the beliefs that we're committed to. Christianity, more than being a worldview or a belief system, is a way of being and living in the world. To follow Jesus is a way of life. And for most of us, as much as I would emphasize the renewing of our minds and the pursuit of truth, I don't think that that's our biggest obstacle when it comes to our discipleship. Especially for those of us that have grown up in Christianity or in the church, our problem isn't up here. Our problem isn't that we don't know enough. Our problem isn't that we haven't read enough books or listened to enough sermons. The problem isn't with what we think. The problem is how we actually live. The disparity between what we know and what we do, what we believe and how we live. There are a million ways that I could try to help us wrap our mind around this. The easiest one for me is that in a few months, I'm going to turn 40. And there's a group of friends from high school who, at the beginning of this year, just three, three weeks ago or so, we all realized we're turning 40 and we're fat. <laughs> and so we started a pool and everybody threw in $100, and we're just doing a short-term competition. Whoever loses the most weight by March 31st gets the whole pool, okay? Um, That was two and a half weeks ago, and I've gained two pounds. (laughs) Um, Now, what's the problem? The problem isn't that I don't know enough. The problem is that I don't know how to lose weight or to be healthier or what healthy eating looks like or I don't know how to exercise. or I know all that. I've known that for many, many years. So the solution isn't read another book, listen to another podcast, watch another documentary to think that I need more information, more content. That's not my problem. The problem is that what I know rarely translates into what I do. What I believe rarely shapes how I live in this area. And so many of us, whether it's you know, food and that sort of thing for you. We all have something. And probably multiple places in our lives, again, that disparity between where we are and where we'd like to be, the problem primarily isn't knowledge that we don't know enough. The problem is that we haven't figured out how to translate what we know into how we're gonna live. Because knowing something isn't the same as doing something. Which is why in the next chunk here, Paul moves from a conversation about wisdom, truth, understanding, into a conversation about lived life. Verse 10, which again says verse 9. (laughs) So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So knowledge isn't enough, learning isn't enough, theology, doctrine, truth isn't enough. It's essential. Don't hear me say that. It's not. But it's not enough. God wants to change our mind, but not just so that we'd have changed minds, but that so somehow that can lead us to a changed life. So first, God changes our minds. Secondly, he changes our lives. All throughout the scripture, especially in the New Testament, in Jesus' teaching, and in the writings of the apostles, we get this ambidextrous approach to discipleship. Following Jesus has to do with what we know and what we do, what we believe and how we live. Knowledge and behavior. In theological terms, we would say orthodoxy and orthopraxy or credenda and agenda, what we believe, how we live. What do Christians know to be true, and how are we called to live? And the hope is that as disciples of Jesus, there would be increasing congruence between those two things. That our lives, our behavior, our actions, our way of being and doing in the world would be consistent with the truth that's been revealed to us in Christ So, think about a place like Luke chapter 8, where Jesus says, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Jesus isn't content for his disciples simply to be people who hear God's word. It's great that you've read the Bible, it's great that you listen to sermons, it's great that you read books, it's great that you know how to say that in Greek my family, my people, my disciples are going to be ones who, yeah, they hear it and they put it into practice. Or James says it this way, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Knowledge and behavior, truth and practice. There's this interesting paradox or tension that's, that exists in most dynamics of the relationship that God has established with his people. And the paradox or the tension has to do with the fact that a passage like this is hard to understand if we don't get that God is always faithful to give us whatever he asks of us. God is always faithful to give us whatever he asks of us. And so, yes, to follow Jesus is costly. There is a high bar set on what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus. He demands our loyalty He demands our faithfulness. He demands our trust and our allegiance to him and to him alone. And even a statement like this one in verse 10 is easy to read and be so overwhelmed by what would it look like to live a life worthy of the Lord? Because for many of us, that feels like it's at odds with a gospel of grace. Isn't the whole point of the gospel that I am unworthy of the Lord? That I am unable to fix myself or to live the life I'm supposed to live? But now Paul seems to present this vision where we are actually able to live a life worthy of Jesus. That our life is actually able to be conformed to his image. That there could be a consistency or congruence between what we believe and how we live. And so, this is again that ambidextrous approach to discipleship. This is again saying Paul is committed to praying that God would be the one changing his people's lives, but that we also would be active participants in that process. The renewing of our minds, the changing of our practice. So what does this look like, to live a life worthy of the Lord? First question is, who's the Lord? It's not just a generic term for God. In this case, it's a direct reference to Jesus. It's not just um, appealing to this idea of truth, but it's actually referencing a person who is truth. A life that's worthy of Jesus himself. A life that has been brought under the lordship of Christ. It's fascinating if you pay attention to Paul's language when, you, when he refers to Jesus. In the book of Colossians, in all of his writings, but since we're in Colossians, he often refers to Jesus as Lord, but he also refers to Jesus as Christ. Many, many times, both. He uses different titles to talk about the same person. And if we were to ask the question, well, which one is it? Is Jesus Lord or is Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Messiah or is Jesus our rabbi? Is Jesus our savior or is Jesus our master? The answer is yes. That he is both Lord and savior. For just a moment, let me hit this, because if you're anything like me, as someone who's grown up in American evangelicalism, I think we would have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus very often was not taken seriously as a teacher. The primary vision of Jesus that I grew up with is Jesus as a savior. The way I think about Jesus, talk to Jesus, and relate to Jesus is as the Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary and then suffered under Pontius Pilate. There were 30-something years between those two points that not every American evangelical church, but most that I know of, spend much less time on. And the truth is that for a lot of us, we look more to somebody like Paul to shape our Christian thought and practice than we look to Jesus himself. And so there is this invitation to say, what would it look like not just to see and trust and celebrate Jesus as Savior, which he is, but to also understand and submit to Jesus as Lord, as master, as teacher. What would it look like if we were to take seriously the words that Jesus said, his teachings about how to be human, about how to relate to God and to relate to others? how to live faithfully as his people in a world that doesn't get it. And there's various streams within historical Christianity that have emphasized this more than others, and those are some of the streams I'm most fascinated by and intrigued by at the moment. Those that are deeply committed to Jesus as Savior, yes, and Jesus as Lord and as Teacher. And so Paul is saying that when it comes to being transformed, to seeing the changes we'd like to see in our lives, it starts with the renewing of our minds, and then it necessarily has to do with the changing of our behaviors, our practices, and our way of living. And rather than three simple steps to this or the six secrets of that, he seems to put forth this idea that it's this allegiance or loyalty or love for Christ himself that's the key to it all. Why is there a gap between what I know and what I do? Why is there a disparity between what I believe and how I live. The problem is because when it comes to what I do and how I live, there's a stronger force than what I know. The stronger force is what I love. What I love will beat out what I know when it comes to shaping how I live. Why have I gained two pounds instead of lost ten in the last two weeks? Because I love burritos. (laughs) It's as simple as that. (laughs) There's something I love more. James K. Smith in the library back there summarizes the whole thing in the title of his book then expands on it in brilliant depth that we are what we love that the journey of discipleship learning to live the life of Jesus is the renewing of our minds and the changing of our behaviors and actions but all of that is rooted in this transformation of our affections, the longings of our heart. What is it that we actually love? Who is it that we actually want? I can change my thinking, and I can change my behaviors, but it's much, much harder to change my affections. Which again is why the passage we're engaging this morning is not a sermon, it is not a lecture, it is not a self-help manual, it is a prayer. It's a declaration of dependence. Say God I'm not willing to settle for superficial change. I don't wanna live with this disparity or this incongruence or this hypocrisy, but I know that in and of myself, I don't have what it takes. I can be self-disciplined. I can make some steps in the right direction. I can make some good changes. I am able to do that. But God, you are the one who can change my heart, who can change what I love. So what's fascinating is that in verse 10, Paul goes, live a life worthy of Jesus. But way down in verse 12, part of what he gives thanks for is that it's the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of his people. Qualified is essentially synonymous with this idea of made worthy. How are we able to live a life worthy? Because God has made us worthy. How are we able to follow Jesus? Because God has given himself to us in Jesus. Here's what's amazing. If we are primarily driven not by what we know, by what we love, I actually think the same is true of the God in whose image we're made. Paul tells us, In verse 13, that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of who? Of the son he loves. There's one thing that we know about God from the Bible. is that God the Father loves his son. And it's because of that love for his son Jesus that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. And we're going, that's great that God loves Jesus. What about me? Verse 14, in whom we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This is the language of union. Our standing, our position, our relationship with God is not based on our effort or our hard work or how well we've done or our performance. But it's based on our location in the son whom he loves. There is one man in all of human history who was loved so perfectly by God that his mind was perfectly formed and his life was perfectly lived. There's one man and you are in him. We are now qualified and have been made worthy of living the life that God has invited us into. So yes, there are things we can do, changes we can make, practices we can take on, but in the end, what we need is for our hearts to be changed, and that's why we're here this morning, that's why we come to the table, that's why we come to the scripture, that's why we gather as a community, to acknowledge that we need something beyond ourselves, bigger than ourselves. To redirect and rewire our affections and our longings. And that's why we pray. Will you stand with me? Holy Spirit. we receive this truth this morning that you are the one who gives knowledge, wisdom and understanding and you are the one who gives strength and power not just to modify our behaviors but to transform our desires. God, my longing is to live a life worthy of the Lord, that my mind would be changed, that my life would be changed, that my heart would be changed. And over these last almost forty years of field research, it's become pretty clear that I don't have what it takes in and of myself to bring about the kind of transformation that I need. And so we're here this morning to declare our dependence upon you. To invite you, Holy Spirit, to continue the good work you've started in us. To keep changing our minds, changing our lives, but ultimately to change our hearts. Would you give us your love for Christ? Would you set our hearts upon him? Would you deepen our desire for Jesus? And would you give us the strength, the courage, the wisdom, the discipline to follow you into deeper truths, into greater power into wider love. We pray that as you transform our lives, that we would become a display to the world of the transforming power of the love of Jesus. We receive you again this morning. In Jesus' name.